Last week, uh, I wasn't able to be here, planned to be here. I, don't know, I saw in the news the other day that last month, Southwest Airlines canceled 2,600 flights. I think 2,500 of those flights were in line in front of me trying to get back to Oklahoma City last week. Uh, we didn't make it. We eventually, they got us all the way to Dallas, and Leah's mom came down and picked us up and got us home from there. So it was a bit of an adventure. Um, it's good to have a weekend that's a little bit less adventurous uh, for my family, and it's good to be here today. You know, we've been talking uh, the last, last time I was here and, and today about how so often as Christians, we get stuck in a fear of failure. That we get stuck being so afraid that we're going to fail that we're unwilling to take any risks. That we're unwilling to be courageous on behalf of the kingdom of God. And when we get into that place where we're unwilling to take risks for the kingdom, what we end up doing is living a life where we're just in the audience watching what other people are doing. We talked about how what God instead calls us to do is to recognize that we are not given a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of courage. That God has called us as his people to live boldly as kingdom people making a difference in the world. So when an opportunity comes in your life to make a kingdom difference, that you don't see it and go, boy, I sure hope someone comes along and, and steps up. That when you see an opportunity uh, to give beyond what you can give, that you don't say, boy, I hope someone who's really generous comes along and steps up. That when you see someone in need that you don't think, boy, I'm going to say a prayer that God sends someone to help this person. That instead in all of these moments that you realize I'm going to take a chance and step out in faith and not be so hung up in my own fear of failure that I'm crippled in fear sitting on the sidelines of life. And the reality is that it's the moments that we are afraid of failing and that we step forward in faith that God is looking to do the most transformative work in our lives. Because there's really only three outcomes that can happen when you step forward in faith instead of being crippled by fear. The first one is this, is that God grants you amazing and unbelievable success is that as a result of your being willing to be courageous instead of terrified, is your willingness to be obedient instead of, uh, of sitting back and saying, God, I hope someone comes along. That what God's going to do is bring you incredible success in that moment. That is a possibility. The other possibility is that you were right to be afraid and you fail. And you may fail miserably. And if you fail miserably, then there's two other possible outcomes that could happen as a result of your failure. One is that God comes along and picks you up and sets you back on your solid footing and you realize, I've got a good God who delivers me from all kinds of failures and difficulties. And if I have a good God who delivers me, one, I can and respond with gratitude and thanksgiving and realize that I can have greater confidence that God's going to take care of me in the future. And the other one is you begin to get a sense of if this is the worst case scenario and I was so afraid of this and God got me through this, what was I afraid of anyways? If God's got my back, what do I need to be afraid of? So you end up getting gratitude and confidence as a result of your failure. 
And the other possibility is that what happens is that through failure is that, that God comes into your life and he says, I needed you to fail this time so that I could grow in you something that you may not have even known that you needed. That you may need to grow uh, perseverance. That you may need to have grown in you reliance on God and others and not on yourself. That maybe God needs to grow in you a willingness to not feel like you're in control of everything. But there's some secret growth that exists in you that failure is, is the way that God can teach you what you need to grow and mature into what God needs you to become. And so when you look at, at failure in terms of these three outcomes, success, gratitude and confidence and growth and maturity in some way, then what is it that we're so afraid of if these are the three possible outcomes of being willing to step forward in courage rather than stepping back out of a fear of failure? Our fear of failure so often prevents bold action and keeps us on the sidelines. Even if we manage to stay safe enough to never fail, Here's the alternative to stepping forward in faith, that even if you manage to secure yourself in a lifestyle that is so safe that you never fail, you actually end up living a life that's not worth living and it's a failure by default. That your life of security in and of itself becomes a, a failure in its own way because the difference that you made in the world is not worth noting. It's by definition a life that has failed to achieve any level of success. There's not, not just scripture that reinforces this. There's a lot of uh, different speakers and writers. Eleanor Roosevelt uh, is often credited but often probably misquoted as saying, do one thing every day that scares you. That's pretty good advice. Do one thing every day that scares you. That's probably a shortened and abbreviated version of a quote that actually belonged to her, which is this. This is the actual quote that, that Eleanor Roosevelt have, is you gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You're able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. It's a statement of incredible courage. This encouragement to not be willing to take a step back when fear looks you in the face, but, but be willing to then take a step into it and be willing to do and overcome the challenges that are in front of us that builds in us a greater amount of courage to deal with the next challenge. There's another writer... Uh, her name is Pima Chodron. Pima Chodron. Uh, she is not Christian. She's a Buddhist nun. And she wrote a book that was very popular several years back called When Things Fall Apart. And in this book called When Things Fall Apart, she imagines uh, a young warrior who goes up to fear itself. And this warrior goes up to fear and says, fear, tell me how I can overcome you. Tell me how I cannot give in to my fear all the time. And, and fear looks at this warrior and tells her, my weapons, this is fear speaking to this young warrior, my weapons are that I talk fast and I get very close to your face. Then you get completely unnerved and you will do whatever I say. If you don't do what I tell you, I have no power. 
You can listen to me, and you can have respect for me. You can even be convinced by me, but if you do not do what I say, I have no power over you. And I think that this is a remarkable way for us to think about fear when it confronts us. And clearly there's some fears that are for our safety. When you look outside and there's lightning striking everywhere around you, your fear of lightning is good. Hold on to that. Don't go run around with golf clubs in a lightning storm. That fear is healthy. And there are always fears that are like this. Fears that, that, that something inside us tells us that it is unsafe to go in, in that direction and to do that thing. And, and that fear is a gift to protect you. Listen to that fear. But there are other times where we hear God calling us to do something difficult. To go somewhere that we may not want to go. To speak to someone to whom we may not want to speak to. To give forgiveness or we may not want to give it to be courageous where we would rather sit on the sidelines. And in those moments, fear gives us a choice. And this is what fear is trying to teach to the young warrior is this, is that when fear enters our life and says, do not go forward, you are too likely to fail, you can respond in one of two ways. But what you need to know is that your response to fear will give greater power to someone. If you respond to fear by obeying what that voice of fear tells you, then you will grow the power of fear in your life for, in, for the future. That the next time fear shows up, it will be even more powerful because you have listened to it in the past. On the other hand, if when fear creeps into your mind and tells you, don't do this thing, you're not good enough, God's not going to back you up, you're going to fail at this, don't proceed, uh, just, just listen to me and I will take care of you, is what fear says. God says, no, listen to me and I will take care of you. When we listen to fear instead of faith, what happens is that fear grows. But if we will become disobedient to that voice of fear, then what grows is our own courage, is our own confidence, both in ourselves and in God. And when we're able to disobey the voice of fear that tells us to sit on the sidelines, and we're able to realize, I failed and it wasn't that bad, I got up again, or I succeeded, or I learned something and grew as a result of this failure, the next time fear comes along and says, you can't do it, you're not good enough, we say, oh, your little voice is weaker than it used to be. I've learned to not listen to you. I've learned that between me and God, I can overcome whatever you throw at me. I'm not afraid anymore. And that courage grows like a muscle grows, and we're able to overcome all that is confronting us. If you listen to fear, your fear will grow, but if you disobey fear, your courage will grow. And now I want to get into Scripture, and we're going to look at two stories and then get briefly into Hebrews. But two stories where people were given this choice. And the first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to kind of skim through some of the highlights of this passage because there's so much there. I often talk about how there are some stories that we learn as children that are really incredible stories. But when we learn about them as children, we think they are children's stories intended for young minds. 
David and Goliath is one of those stories, and we think we mastered it when you were like the age of third grade. And I've got to tell you, if you go back and read this entire chapter of 1 Samuel 17, you will be blessed beyond belief by realizing that there is so much there for you as a mature and older Christian and person of faith to see what David is up against. And you'll also figure out that many of your coloring sheets lied to you. But we'll get to that in a minute. So starting in 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 through 11, it says this, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. The whole army of Israel is there with the whole army of the Philistines. And Goliath comes out, and he would come out, and he would shout at them, Why have you come out and lined up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Terrified. Now you have to remember that all of these Israelite soldiers who are out here on the battle lines grew up hearing stories about Abraham and about Moses and about how the Israelites were delivered from mighty Pharaoh's hand in Egypt and that, that, that this is the God who could part the waters of both the Red Sea and the Jordan. They know these stories. They've been told the stories of all the things that God has accomplished through Joshua's armies. And, and that they know that the walls of Jericho fell. And they know that you don't have to be the biggest and the strongest and the toughest if you go to battle with God on your side. Oh, yeah. And yet, here they are. This giant Philistine comes out with huge heavy armor and he starts yelling scary things at them. Yeah. And they start listening, not to the voice of faith, but to the voice of fear. You can't defeat this giant. If you fail, all of your people will be subjected to the Philistines. God won't show up and get your back. And they listen to the little voice, and every day that they listen to it, it grows stronger and louder and more powerful in their minds. They did this every day for 40 days. They would come out to the battle lines, Goliath would come forward and taunt them, and they would cower in fear for 40 days. We're going to jump down and pick up the story in, in verse 20. It says, early in the morning, now David has not been there with the Israelites. David has been back tending the sheep. His three older brothers are there uh, with the military, and they're in the battle lines. Uh, but early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. Jesse's David's father. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines and facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the battle cry 
that they're yelling out, and they've been doing this for 40 days, and they go out, and the Israelites are yelling the battle cry every day as they walk up to the lines, trying to encourage themselves. And the most common uh, battle cry that we have from ancient Israelite armies uh, is this. It is, Rock Shavak Amatz. And they would march out yelling, Rock Shavak Amatz, which means strong and courageous. Strong and courageous, they would yell. These, of course, are the words that the angel of God gave to Joshua. Be strong and courageous and do not be afraid, for the Lord goes with you this and every day. And so as they're going out to battle, the thing that they are yelling to remind themselves is if we will be strong and courageous, as Joshua was told, then God will fight on our behalf. Strong and courageous, strong and courageous. And then Goliath steps forward and they stop yelling. And Goliath taunts them and their God and they cower and start running away and backing away in fear. Forty days. And David shows up in this moment. And David, when he arrives, has a very different response than all of those others who have been there for 40 days. Uh, in verse 32, we're picking up, David then goes and he says to Saul, he says, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Got to go do a timeout here real quick. Pull up all of your like third grade coloring sheets, right? David is a child in a child's tunic with no beard. For some reason, David grows up and becomes king, still no beard. He got a beard at some point. It's fine. But your coloring sheets, he's little, right? Here's how David convinces Saul to let him go to battle. Because Saul is, does not have as much faith as David does. And so if a little child walks up to Saul and says, I'll go get him. I've got a sling. Okay, Saul's going to go, no, I'm not stupid. We'll all be servants if I send you out there. David has to convince Saul that it's okay for him to go up there. So here's what David says. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, when a lion or bear turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Yes. Okay, the little boy in the coloring sheet is not running around and grabbing lions by their mane and punching them to death. Right? right. We're all in agreement on this. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could say, well, maybe it means he struck him by the sling that he was really good at, even as a young child from a distance. But he says, no, when it turns on me, I grabbed it by its hair and struck it and killed it after pulling a sheep out of its mouth. There's this kind of feeling that he gave the bear a chance, right? Like the bear took my sheep. I pulled my sheep out of its mouth. If the bear then was like, I get it, David, you're tougher than me and runs away, I'll let it get away. But if it turns on me, it's the bear's own fault. It should have known better. 
This is the story. And Saul looks at this young man, not a child, young man who says this to him and says, I think you're going to do pretty well against this Philistine. Let's get you suited up. Let's get you dressed for battle. And it actually says then, and Saul's the guy that's described as a head taller than all the other Israelites. And he says, here, put on my tunic, which he doesn't go to someone who's two feet shorter than him and just say, let's just see if my clothes fit you. Okay, he's actually saying, you, you know, you're, we're similar in stature. Try on my clothes. Put on this armor. Uh, and David says, I'm not using armor. I'm going to go and fight using the gifts God has given me. Exactly. What David knows is that Goliath is really outfitted in what, in modern military terms, we would consider uh, heavy infantry or heavy artillery. He, he's really going in like a tank. He's got a javelin that's so heavy, David's got to get pretty close to be able to do this. David doesn't even take a sword. He has to know, if I get within sword's length of this guy, the battle's over, I lose. David's strategy is to be light, uh, light artillery. He's nimble, he's agile, and he can shoot from a distance. And so when Goliath gets up there and he says, you're just a boy, come up here and fight me, uh, David just takes several quick steps at him, fires his sling, which is one of the most is deadly uh, weapons of the Israelite army at this time, and strikes Goliath dead and uses his own sword to finish him off. That's the story. It's a story where David is unwilling to sit on the sidelines while God is mocked. And he gives when he steps up and fights Goliath, he gives God all the glory. And he's got all of his confidence because God got him through the battle with the bear. And God got him through the battle with the lion. And what David is saying is, I've learned to never listen to the voice of fear. And I've learned to always listen to the voice of faith. And my courage has grown to the point that this Philistine doesn't scare me one bit. Because God's got me through all the other things in the past. And he goes out and he kills the Philistine and he gives God the glory because he knows that it's God who's gotten him through all of these things before. David is risking great failure, but his unbelievable confidence in God allows him to take on this giant that's left the others trembling in fear. And we always, when we're looking at this story, we zoom in on the scene with David and Goliath. And we may zoom out enough to get Saul over here on the periphery of our vision. But it's really when we zoom out to the whole battlefield that we see what's really at stake in this story. That what we see on the field is a field covered in people who don't trust God. It's a whole field covered in people who listen to the voice of fear and listen to the voice of faith and have been listening to fear dominate their lives for 40 days. And they're crippled by it. And they've been reduced to being spectators to the incredible thing that God is about to do. And we can relate to that, can't we? Aren't there so many times that God says, I need you to step up and get in the arena and we say, no, I just heard what fear of failure looks like. And so I'm going to sit here and wait for someone else, a shepherd boy who's only here because he was supposed to bring groceries, to step up and say, I'm not afraid. God's got me through this. God's going to get me through yet another thing. He's not crippled by fear. He's empowered by faith. And it's not just something that happens in these great moments of heroism in the Old Testament. I want to look at Matthew chapter 14, where there's another story where we often look at the one who steps into the arena and not the ones who sit on the sideline. Matthew chapter 14, 
There's a story uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and, and this story is incredible to me because he actually begins when the apostles come up and they say, listen, set these 5,000 people home. We don't have enough food to feed them. And Jesus says to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. The call in that moment for Jesus is this. I'm ready for you guys to step out of my shadows and into the arena. It's time for you guys to step forward with incredible faith. And the apostles respond with fear and logistics, the two things that often leave us unwilling to step forward. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, fine, if you're not going to do it, I will. I will step up in this moment and reduce you to spectators of what I'm about to do. Because if you don't have faith, the best you can be is a spectator to what God's going to do with or without you. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, they each get to carry back 12 baskets full. 12, one each, looking at what they got to be a spectator to instead of stepping into the arena with faith. And so it's after that story that they immediately... In verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And, and we talk sometimes about how these, some of these apostles were fishermen and accompanied to boats. But, but you also need to know... Uh, the Philistines and the Greeks, they travel everywhere on great ships. The Jews push out a little bit in shallow water to fish, and they come back. There's a reason every time fishermen, Jewish fishermen are out fishing, if you want to, you can go yell at them from the shore. They didn't go that far into the water. For the Jews and the Israelites, the, the deeps are filled with mystery and chaos and out of control, and they're a little bit scared of the deep waters. Uh, it, it, they're unaccustomed to deep water travel. And so here as they're setting out in the middle of this, the, the sea and the lake and the wind is buffeting against the ship, it's unnerving to them. They are not in this moment comfortable even as Jewish fishermen. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. It's worth noting that a lot of times we scientific-minded people in the year of our Lord 2021 often look back on the miracles of the past and we kind of go, oh, they were really gullible and dumb back then. They didn't know how miracles and science and everything worked. They understood that living people don't walk on water. They got that. And so when Jesus comes up, none of them were like, yeah, that happens sometimes. Sometimes people walk on water. Why not? They see Jesus walking on the water, and they're terrified, and they think that it's a ghost. And so they cry out in fear, and they're screaming and they're wailing. And Jesus immediately says to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Awesome. Which is awesome, but also a moment of temporary insanity. A normal thing to say here was, Jesus, if that's you, say the password we agreed on. If we're not sure, it's you. Jesus, if that's you, wave. I told you it was Jesus. He waved. But you say, Jesus, if that's you, say, it's me, Jesus. 
Those are normal things to say. Jesus, if that's you, calm down the wind and the storms. You did that once, it would be great. Fix the weather. That's a normal thing to say. Peter says something crazy here. Jesus, if that's you, tell me to get out of this boat where I'm safe and not drowning and tell me to walk to you where you are because you're not a ghost and I shouldn't be as terrified as I am right now. That's what Peter says. You know what 11 other people in this story say? He's crazy. It's not in the text. You have to read between the lines to get this. 11 other people in the boat go, what? What is he doing? And Peter says it. Jesus says, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And I have so many questions about all the things that Matthew left out of this story. Peter, I mean, does he just jump? Peter might have jumped, just kind of goes, all right, and then just two feet overboard, and then starts walking. Or does he kind of just get in and go, whoop, feels pretty solid, let's try this out. When Peter was walking on the water, did his feet get wet or did they stay dry? I don't know that. Did he, like, have to step over waves? Because the wind is blowing and the waves are there. Did he have to, like, step over them? Like, man, this is kind of weird. Uh, or was it more of a, like, you know, Moses situation where the, the water stayed there, but it got smooth and he could just walk across? And he's like, man, I've got, like, a highway in the, between the waves and they're moving. And did it feel like glass? Was it cool? I, there's so many questions that I have in this moment that Matthew leaves out because he doesn't think they're as important as I do. He's probably right, but I'm still upset. Peter starts looking around in the midst of walking on the waves. He starts to become afraid of the wind, and he starts becoming afraid of the waves, and his lack of faith results in him sinking into the water. That's happening over here. In the boat, they're just watching. They weren't ready to step out in faith. They listened to the voice of fear. And the voice of fear said, stay in a boat, don't get out on the water. The voice of fear said, you can't do this. The voice of fear said, just be a spectator, don't step into the arena. Peter at least got out there. Peter at least walked several steps. And I don't know if he made it one, two, five, ten steps towards Jesus before he starts to sink. But he does start to sink. He has, at that point, failed, but not as much as the guys that never got out of the boat. And then Jesus, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. And he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And here we are again with Matthew skipping details that I really want. Because in verse 32, and then they climbed back into the boat and the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now what I want to know is this, is Peter starts sinking. Jesus, still standing, is now going to get Peter back from here over to the boat. And there's really only three ways he can do it. Um, one that's the funniest for me to imagine is that he just reaches down, grabs Peter's hand, and drags him. <laughs> you know, get in the boat. That one's really fun for me. 
The other one is something more like Jesus kind of reaches down and, and picks him up and, and in some way on the, on the waves, and the wind is still blowing. It doesn't die down until they're back in the boat. The wind is still blowing, and Jesus in some way kind of carries Peter back to the boat. That could be what happened. And the other possibility is that Jesus picks him up and holds him and says, come on, let's walk back. And I don't know which one of those it is. I can't wait to find out someday which one it was. But what I know is this. What I know is that whichever one of those three it was, at the moment when Peter had completely failed, Jesus saves him. And he puts him back on solid ground. And we get that same promise is that when we fail, God's not going to abandon us. That God comes through, and God puts us back on safe footing. And the result of him doing that is that everyone in the boat now says, this guy's the big deal. This guy is the one we've been waiting for, and they worship him. They worship him because they realize that this is something that they have all prayed for, and now those prayers are being answered in Jesus because he has rescued Peter from his failure and set him back on good footing. Because when we fail, one of the possibilities is that we're going to fail, and God saves us, and we respond with gratitude and confidence. That's the story. Peter learns from this too, doesn't he? Peter fails over and over again in the Gospels, all kinds of times that he just jumps out of the boat with both feet. Jesus picks him up and says, you've got to learn from this. When Jesus is gone and the Spirit comes, Peter's ready to finally preach the message that the world needs to hear. God was growing him through his failures and doing all of these things. Which brings us to the story, uh, the passage that was read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, and we don't have time to go through the incredible list of heroes. Here's what you need to know. If there's an Old Testament hero that you've heard of or you haven't, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, Isaac, uh, Rahab, uh, Samson, so many of the judges, all of these hero, heroes of faith are listed in Hebrews 11. And at the end of this list, of all of those who refused to stay on the sidelines because of fear, all of those who got into the arena because they chose to listen to faith instead. In 11.39 it says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Writer of Hebrews says this All of those heroes who stepped into the arena with faith are now watching you. They're watching you. They're watching you. And they're watching because they know that what was promised to them they didn't receive yet, but you now have it. You have salvation in Jesus. You have the Spirit dwelling in you. And they're watching us as spectators because they already did their acts of heroism. And now we have something greater than they had. And they're sitting there and they're saying, I can't wait to see 
what these sons and daughters of God are going to do now. I can't wait to see what these brothers and sisters of Jesus are going to do now. Surely they won't step onto the sidelines. Surely they will step into the arena. And they're watching us with anticipation because they know that those who are believers in Jesus Christ are going to step up with courage and faith and listen to faith and not the little voice of fear. And that through disobedience to fear and obedience to God, we're going to then join them someday as the great audience that someday is going to watch the future versions of the church future men and women who were baptized into Jesus and clothed with the Spirit, waiting and saying, I can't wait to see what the next generation's going to do. Right now it's our turn to step out in faith, to get out of the back battle lines and move into the front where Goliath is, to get out of the boat and walk to where Jesus is, to get out of our comfort zone in our homes and go to where God is calling us to do the things that he calls us to do and say the things that he wants us to say, to be his people in a world that's used to people stepping back onto the sidelines and saying, I hope someone comes along and does what God needs to get done. Are you going to listen to fear? Or are you going to listen to faith? Because there's only three outcomes. You can succeed, you can get gratitude and faith, or you can be grown in a way that you didn't know you need. But God won't forsaken you or abandon you. This morning, if you need to respond to this, if there has been anything that has been holding you back from stepping forward in faith and confidence, for recognizing that you need a more bold and courageous relationship with Jesus and to have a bigger and more bold and courageous role in his kingdom, if you need to respond to that invitation today, come forward as we stand and sing together.